The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, if you have your Bible, you want to follow along in Psalm 119. I'll get to that in a minute. I recently read uh, a book by Benny Hinn's grand uh, nephew, and some of you may know who Benny Hinn is. He's probably the most famous health and wealth prosperity preacher. And if you're familiar with that theology at all, um, it's that God will bless you, but you got to give to Him. And the way to give to Him is give to the prosperity preacher, so he can drive his Bentley and fly his $140 million jet and stay at five-star hotels and have five-star meals. And you can, it's very interesting to read about the lifestyle and what that life was like because Costi Hinn is the nephew whose dad was also caught up in this ministry, also a health and wealth preacher. And they had two exquisite houses, one in Canada, one on the beach in California. And Costi, uh, comes out of that. He got saved. He came to a true understanding of Christ. And this is his description. <clears throat> I just want to read a, an excerpt from the book, and then we'll, I think it ties into our message here. But the prosperity gospel teaches it is never God's will for his children to be sick. And sickness means you're the problem. Muster up enough faith or give a big enough offering and you'll get your healing. This belief has often led to two things. The bragging of prosperity gospel preachers from the pulpit that nobody in their house is sick because they practice what they preach, and two, prosperity gospel followers hiding their sickness for fear of being condemned in their community as someone with no faith. And then he talks about Christine's asthma was something we downplayed all the time because sickness was not allowed in the hen house. So Christine was uh, Costi's fiancée, he moved to Canada, and his fiancée lived in the basement of their place for a time so that Christine could find favor with the Hinn family. And finding favor was she needed to speak in tongues, and she needed to get the blessing from the family. And she, so this is him talking about that. So, so she came to live in the basement, and he said Christine's asthma was something we downplayed all the time because sickness was not allowed in the hen house until one day when things took a very serious turn. Christine, I called down the basement stairwell of my parents' place, and Christina began to spend much of her time in the basement to avoid my family. At this point in our journey together, she spent, she wasn't speaking tongues, she was not getting the spirit, and she was not falling at the feet of the family. With the wedding only two months away, tensions were rising because the family was trying to get her to conform, but nothing was working. Family arguments ensued, comments were made, and the whole thing turned ugly fast. Christine was starting to break down. I tried again, Christine, but there was nothing but silence. Her car was in the driveway, but she wasn't in her room or anywhere in the house. 
Maybe she's outside getting some air. I wasn't sure where she was, so I headed downstairs to be sure she wasn't there. And in the corner of the basement, a storage room door was open a crack, and I could see a body on the floor. Christine, I rushed over and tried to push the door all the way open, but it blocked, was blocked by her body. I squeezed through the gap to find my bride-to-be paralyzed and gasping for air. I scanned her body, noticing her veins were massive and bulging through her arms, wrists, and neck. I took hold of her face and caught her fading eyes. Can you hear me? She nodded. What do I do with this? I pointed at a little machine about the size of an iPad that was next to her. It had a hose coming off of it. It was turned on. She motioned with her eyes as best as she could at a small vial with fluid in it. I started asking more questions, telling her to blink if the answer was yes. She was barely breathing when I got the fluid into the tube and it created a vapor she could breathe in. I shoved the tube into her mouth. Her hands were withered and crippled, and as I held Onto one of her hands, a tear started to slowly run down her face. Do I need to call an ambulance, I asked. She shook her head no. Within several minutes, her body was released from paralysis and she could talk. She explained that she had just had a severe asthma attack. I was certain it was stress-related because this had never happened since I knew her. Why are, you, why are you in the basement storage room with this machine? Shouldn't this be right next to your bed or in your closet where you can get to it at all times, I asked. I've been hiding it, she explained. I know we can't talk about my asthma because sickness is not allowed in your home. I put my medicine and nebulizer in the storage room so your parents won't find it if they ever go through my stuff. Her response to this question was all I needed to hear. My blood was boiling. Enough was enough. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew it was time to get her out of this environment. That's where bad theology leads you. You can't be sick. You see, bad theology shows up in hard times, in affliction. Bad theology might lead you to think when hard times come, not something this extreme, but that God might be punishing you, or that God isn't good, or that God has forgotten me. Theology is important, and everyone in this room is a theologian. And we memorized the verse this morning. Do you remember the verse? You are good. Teach me your statutes. All right, we're going to get to that. That is, that is the theology for the soul. Preach it to yourself again and again and again. You are good and you do good. Let's give attention to God's word. You've dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. In your law. For it, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I might learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let's pray. Speak now for your servant is listening. I ask, O Lord, that you would give strength to me, to the preacher, to the speaker, and to the listeners, and that we all might glorify you, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
As you know, Psalm 119 is a massive book of the Bible. It's longer than 30 of the 66 books of the Bible. And this is kind of the Mount Everest uh, of uh, the Psalms. There are 22 stanzas. And the 22 stanzas, they each begin with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so, and each of these stanzas, uh, sections is eight verses. So 22 times eight, you get 176 verses. And er almost every verse has a reference to God's law. And it's used with different terms that are used. So Torah and word and rules and Commandments, decrees, precepts, promises. Psalm 119 is written by someone who is in love with God's word. And you notice before us, as you look at this passage, how it just keeps referring to the word of God. So in verse 65, your word. Verse 66, your commandments. Verse 67, your word. Verse 68, your statutes. Verse 69, your precepts. You getting this? Verse 70, your law. Verse 71, your statutes. Verse 72, the law. Verse 73, your commandments. 74, your word. 75, your rules. They're all interchangeable, okay? And they're showing us, the, the psalmist is showing us one who is in love with God's word and he's also praying God's word and he's wanting his life to conform to this word. And so most of this psalm is actually a prayer. It's a prayer that he would love the law. And God's law, some of you may think, well, the law is bad and the gospel is good. And if you had that hard Luther dichotomy where he would mainly see the law as something to break you down, and that is one of the purposes of the law. But that was kind of all that Luther mainly focused on was the, was the law was, was what was used to reveal sin and show you your need for Jesus. But a more proper view of the law is to see all the uses of God's law. And John Calvin was really big into the three uses of the law, seeing the law as good for society, and society needs laws to, to conform to so that, you know, people don't hit you at, at a red light. You know, they actually stop and they look both ways and then they pull out. I mean, without laws, we would be, it would just be chaos. And so laws are good. And God's uh, laws, as, as a believer now, is what did Jesus actually live out? He lived out the law. And he kept the law for us. And so now we as believers having his spirit, we want to, the way that we love people is by loving God's laws. And, and so last week, Pastor Ben talked about the gift of the Sabbath and how the Sabbath was made man and how this is a gift that we need rest. And God has given us a day to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and to trust him that all these other things, like my laundry and bills to pay and all these things that I need to do, God's going to take care of that, and I'm going to get some rest. And so God gave us a fifth commandment. Do you know why he gave the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. He gave a fifth commandment to protect families because God loves families. Do you know why he gave a sixth commandment? You shall not murder. He gave a sixth commandment to protect life because God loves life. And God gave a seventh commandment. You shouldn't commit adultery to protect marriages. He gave an eighth commandment, not to steal, because God cares about personal property. God gave a ninth commandment. You should not bear false witness because he, he loves your reputation. He protects reputations. And God gave a tenth commandment. 
to show us the internal nature of God's law, thou shalt not covet. And that tends to be the one that shows us our need, our sin and our need for Jesus. It's what broke the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 and showed him his need that he couldn't do this in and of himself. So God's law is good. And what we see here is the psalmist has a few prayer requests in this passage. You could say that you know the whole psalm is, is, is a prayer, but what we see here is, if you had to just crystallize it, Psalm 119 in one verse, it would be Jesus' prayer for the church in John 17 where he said, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. That's all of Psalm 119 right there. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in the truth. Same thing. And so here, there's a few prayer requests. We have in verse 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge. And in verse 68, we have, what's the prayer request? Teach me your statutes. And then we have it again in verse 73b. Give me understanding. It's helping us to learn how to pray because what we realize is that, you know, the reason we pray before a sermon And the reason we pray before our worship service begins is we pray for illumination. We ask for God's help to understand the scriptures, for wisdom. And what we're really praying for is like the penny to drop. You know what that old expression means, the penny to drop? It's like you stick the thing in the machine until it actually drops. Do you actually get the the goodie, right? Well, the idea is that we need these truths that we know. Not only do we want them to affect our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we are lovers of God and his word is transforming us from the inside out. And so do you pray before you look at God's word? Do you just pick it up and just read it like any other book? Do you ask God to speak to you, reveal himself to you? Do you ask for wisdom with prayers like this? Teach me your statutes. Teach me good judgment. Give me understanding that I might learn your commandments. You see, the psalmist prayed this, and as he prayed it, he made an interesting discovery. The discovery, as he's praying for good judgment and knowledge and understanding, is God answered his prayer in ways that he was not expecting. And that brings us to the heart of the passage. You see, if you look at the header to this psalm, verses 65 to 72 is the Hebrew word teth. And that means that every single verse begins with what would be our capital T, okay? So this is the teth. So, and that's the way that this acrostic works. The writer is brilliant that to make this poem, and you look and they all begin with teth, but, but verse 65, 66, 68, 71, and 72, five out of the eight verses, all begin with the Hebrew word tov. And that's just the word good. And sometimes we'll translate that as well. And you that know English better than me can explain that later to me. But you've done, you know, you can't say you've dealt good with your servant. We say you've dealt well with your servant. But it's the word tov. It's God's goodness. And so this whole passage from 65 to 72 is God, about God's goodness. His goodness in his law. And his goodness in particular in affliction. And so the summary is, you are good and do good. And so what does that mean? Well, borrowing from Charles Spurgeon, great preacher in England 100 years ago, listen to what he says about this. God is essential goodness in himself. 
And in every attribute of his nature, he is good in the fullest sense of the term. Indeed, he's a monopoly of goodness, for there's none good but one that is God. His acts are according to his nature from a pure source, flows pure streams. Pure source, pure streams. You are good, you do good. God is infinitely good. The creature's good is limited, but there's nothing to limit the perfection of God or give it any measure. He is an ocean of goodness without banks or bottom. Alas, what is our drop to this ocean. God is immutably good. His goodness can never be more or less than it is, and there can be no addition to it or no subtraction from it. They are, he is morally good, beneficially good, perfectly good, immeasurably good, immutably good, experimentally good, satisfactorily good. He is good. Everything about God is goodness, and all the wonderful attributes that we talk about God, God's grace, God's love, his mercy, his compassion, what do they all fit under theologically? His goodness, his goodness. This all flows because God is good, and because God is good, then everything that meters out providentially in history is Good, you are good, therefore what you do is good. Is his act of creation good? Does he not tell us over and over again every day? What does he say after he creates something? It is good, it is good, it is good. And then when he gets all done, he says it is very good. God is good. And then in God's acts of providence, as he meters out the things that happen in this world, they're good. They're always good, and yet they, sometimes they don't feel good or seem good, but they're good. God's act of redemption, was it good? It brought about the greatest good ever, the salvation of souls. God is good in all his ways, in his being and what he does. Would you say that someone was a good doctor if you went to the doctor and you've got a pain in your side and, and it's near the stomach but off to one side and it's pain and you've got a fever and you go to the doctor and he just writes you a prescription to bring the fever down, would that be a good doctor? Because he just doesn't deal with the symptoms. He says, man, we've got to run some scans because it looks to me, it sounds to me like you might have appendicitis and if that appendix burst, you could die. And so a good doctor will run scans and a good doctor may have to actually put a knife to you and cut something out. Can that seem good? I mean, my knee surgery, it's little tiny knee surgery. I couldn't walk a couple weeks ago because I had cartilage meniscus in the way. My leg wouldn't even extend and it hurt. Then they give me meds after the surgery. I'm like, I needed them before the surgery. I'm fine now, like this is great. A good doctor fixes you, but the immediate fix isn't always pleasant. God is the good doctor, and he does surgery on our souls. And the physician is good who, who mends the, the limbs and, and treats us. And a good dentist, though it hurt, but boy, do you feel good afterwards, right? And what the psalmist is saying is he, he's sharing a testimony with us. And his testimony his testimony is before affliction, I went astray. But now I obey your word. I keep your word. There's an interesting testimony. Before affliction, I went astray. 
Meaning, in times of prosperity, in times of health and wealth gospel, in times where I thought, man, I am experiencing the good life, that we're supposed to be talking about the good life, aren't we supposed to be prospering and wealthy and healthy all the time and feeling good? What does the psalmist say if you actually get that and nothing else? Before affliction, I wandered off like a sheep. We go astray. As Spurgeon would say, grace is low and temptation is strong. When in times of prosperity, or as Moses would say, Deuteronomy 32, 15, but Jerusalem grew fat and kicked. Boy, that's always a kicker. Jerusalem grew, he's talking about Israel, you grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek, and then you forsook God who made you, and you scoffed at the rock of your salvation. Oof. You grew fat and kicked. <laughs> That is not encouraging word, is it? And so God in his goodness, he gives good gift to us. He gives good gifts to us. And, and, and that as a father, as Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if we then are evil and we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He gives us his Holy Spirit. But he gives us Holy Spirit often in the midst of adversity. I wonder how many people actually come to Jesus when, when, in, in great times. You know, like as the session, the elders, we get to hear the testimonies of people and they share their story of how they came to Christ. And, and, and often, they're, you know, their childhood conversions or they can't remember, but, but often a season of growth in their life or their conversion was when something really hard happened. And sin was revealed. And they made a bad decision, or somebody somebody died, or somebody got sick. And, you know, God wakes us up in those hard times. And so we're talking about the good life, and the psalmist here is expanding on that. And um, here we're, we're, we're getting at this personal testimony. Before affliction, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And notice the other two things he says about affliction in this text. Verse 71, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. And then in verse 75, notice verse 75. Does it say in foolishness you afflicted me? Does it say in wrath you afflicted me? Does it say in punishment you afflicted me? What does it say? In faithfulness you afflicted me. And so... This word affliction is an interesting word. It isn't used that many times in the Bible. It means to be laid low. It means to be bowed down. It literally means to be downcast and depressed. The psalmist has a lot to say about being deflated by the circumstances of life, and here it is. And what, once again, what Spurgeon says is the rod of correction that God brings by a miracle of grace is like Aaron's rod. It begins to bud and blossom with the almonds. It brings forth the fruit of righteousness, which is most excellent. He says, a rare sight it is indeed to see a man coming out of a bed of languishing and out of a furnace of affliction, and now he's like the angels in purity. You know, often it's interesting how pain is this great divider in Tim Keller's book on walking with God and pain and suffering, he talks about pain being this fulcrum. It either drives people far from God and they're mad at God more than ever 
or they fall in love with God. And pain is this great fulcrum. It either breaks us and humbles us and makes us love him all the more or makes us bitter. And so I want to ask you this morning, are the very things that are happening in your life that are hard, are they making you bitter? Are they making you better? You see, what the psalmist has learned is, man, your words, your law is better than thousands pieces of gold and silver. It's better than all the jewels and all the charms and promotion and all the accolades and escalades of, of you know, that you can drive in this society, you know. I mean, he's saying, I'll take your word. It's better. I, he has found the Lord. Martin Luther, who discovered uh, the great truths of the gospel in the 1500s, he said this about this very passage. He said, I want you to know how to study theology in the right way. I have frequently practiced this method myself, and here you will find three rules. This is classic Luther. They are frequently proposed throughout Psalm 119, and they run thus. And then he has three Latin words, which I never learned Latin, so you guys that know it can tell me later. But oration, meditatio, and tentatio. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but here's the English. Prayer, meditation, trial. Or prayer, meditation, affliction. And he says, and trials, the last one, he called the touchstone, the most important. They teach you not only to know and understand, but ought to how to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. It is wisdom supreme. And he goes on to say, you know, as Lutheresque, tongue-in-cheek, for as soon as God's words becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you, and he'll make a real doctor of you, meaning a theologian. And he will teach you by his temptations to seek and love God's word. For I myself owe my papists many thanks for so beating and pressing and frightening me through the devil's raging that they've turned me into a fairly good theologian, driving me to a goal I should never have reached. You love how Luther's tongue-in-cheek, you know, thanking, thanking the Pope himself for all of the hard times of trying to kill me and all these other things. Well, the psalmist's prayer is answered. You want good judgment? You want to really learn God's, God's word? You want to teach me your statutes for your good and you do good? And we begin to grow in obedience. And then we discover that the hotbed, the greenhouse for cultivating and growing fruit in our life is actually affliction. It's God's chisel. It's God's hammer. It's God's brush to conform us into the image of his son. And even Jesus himself, what are we told about him in Hebrews? That in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, through what he suffered. And Spurgeon put it like this to get our attention in his sermon on this very passage. He said, I don't know whether you all are awake even now. Many ministers preach asleep. I'm sure they do. Many deacons do all the church business asleep, and numbers of people come to the prayer meetings and pray in their sleep. I don't mean physical sleep but I mean spiritual sleep, which is quite a serious matter. The whole of some men's religion is a sleep, which is, which is quite serious. The whole of some men's religion is a kind of sleepwalking 
There is not that vigor in it. There's not that heart in it. There's not that earnestness in it that there ought to be. They need to be waked up by something startling. Our trials and afflictions afflictions are intended to do this. They come like a clap of thunder and they startle us. And we ask, where am I? What am I doing? And we begin to question ourselves. Am I really what I profess to be? And death stares us in the face. In the face, And we are put into the balance and weighed and tried. We try our hopes and professions and are less likely to be self-deceived. Realities become realities and fancies become fancies when sharp trials befall us. The things of this world become dreams to us when keen affliction comes. And so it is of special benefit to us because under the Spirit of God, it is awakening and arousing. And we know, we know just from... Uh, a normal perspective of life, that no pain, no gain. This past summer with some of the guys, we went, we went into training to do this Civil War century, which was we were going to set out a goal. I'm turning 50 in December. Let's see if we can do this 100-mile bike ride and end up being 106 with 7,000 feet of climb, the Civil War century, and it looked pretty daunting. And, and old Zaki kept saying, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do it. And he was, he motored big time. And we got into shape. And when you start doing something like this and to start to train, do you train on flat ground? Do you say, let's just ride on flat ground because the hard hills, that would be painful. That would be affliction. And we don't want that. Let's just ride flats. You know, why don't we just go down to the beach and just ride on the beach? You know, ride. Would that work? That would be terrible because you, you, the only way that you can get ready for a ride like this is you start doing hills, some very steep hills like Black Rock Road and then other nice, you know, things are just going to gash you like Gillis Falls Road. And then we would climb Sugarloaf Mountain and we would do it sometimes multiple times. So that we're growing stamina and ability to ride and you start off just doing 25 miles which is, it sounds like, that might sound like a lot. That's, that's like an hour and a half. And then you go to 35, and then to 45, and then to 55, and 65. And then, and then one of the times, we actually went out to Thermont, because that's where we were starting from, and you're going over the ridge. And you go over the ridge, and you come back over. And it was a 27-mile ride, and I was done. I was so thankful I had people to see that morning, because they were going to do it twice. And we got back the first time, and I was cramping already. I was done. And those guys were all going to do it again. I was so thankful to say, guys, I got, I got friends coming to the house. I got to go. But as I drove home, I had this sinking feeling that I can't do it. These guys are in much better shape than I am, and I have this big problem with cramping. I, I sweat like three times more than a normal person. And it's just, you guys can tell, they can tell you. <laughs> and so... I just thought, I'm not going to be able to do this. Thankfully, it was a cool day that we did the ride, and I was able to do it. But what we learned together is by doing this together is that we needed the pain, and we did it together. And isn't that kind of like the Christian life? I mean, the hardest part when we actually did the ride was the last little part was 102 miles in, and, and, some, and Dave stopped for a moment, he was needed some mustard packet. He was starting to cramp. And I just thought, well, I'll just keep riding because I'm not feeling good anyway. I'll just keep pedaling along. And they'll all catch me in a minute. And I just wandered out by myself. And there was nobody around. And all of a sudden, all the adrenaline of, like, it just, I was in pain. 
my feet hurt so bad from being clicked in. The wind's blowing in my face. And I thought, what am I doing? I just need the guys. Like, I'm all by myself. And I kept saying to myself, where's Tour de France? Because that, that was Mark Stratmeyer. If he's in front of me, I can hide behind him and hide behind that wind. And he wasn't there. And I was in pain. And so the point here is that we need each other in this difficult race because as we're in this race, as you saw from Hebrews 12, is it an easy race? Do any of us get the really easy race? It's a painful race, and it doesn't seem pleasurable at the time, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so as we think through that, we also have to ask ourselves, like Jonathan Edwards did when he made his 70 resolutions, Resolution number 25 was this, because this is where temptation comes and maybe where some of you are at today. Jonathan Edwards said this, he was resolved to examine carefully and constantly what the one thing in me is, the one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. Is that not a smart resolution? Because where does temptation begin? It all begins with doubting the first part over here. You are good and do good. If we begin to doubt it all that God is good, then we think, like Adam and Eve did, God must be holding out on you. Must be something better. I just need that one tree. If I just had that one piece of fruit, there'll always be one piece of fruit. And if you just had that one piece of fruit, then you'd really be happy. If I just had that one thing, what's the one thing? Well, the one thing is going to cause you to doubt the love of God because you're not going to get it. And when you get that, there's going to be always one more thing. But to direct all your forces against whatever is attacking you to doubt the love of God. Now, who's the only one person who did this perfectly? There's one person who loved the law, who loved it, memorized much of it, I'm sure. I mean, Jesus is constantly quoting Scripture. And Jesus did it perfectly. And who had the hardest race ever to be won? The weight of our sin, the weight of our shame, all fell on him. And he had to walk the Via Della Rosa, the road of suffering. And Jesus went to a cross because none of, us have, none of us have lived this passage with perfection. We're all guilty. And Jesus has done it for us. But now he's called us by his, by his grace, by his spirit, to follow in his footsteps, to be lovers of the word, not lovers of pleasure, to see the world as God sees it, and to see his goodness, and to see that he is our father, and that he's taking care of us. And when the hard times come, and there will be hard times, that we trust him and say, you are good, and do good. Teach me your statutes. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Build our hope. And grow us in our love. For you and for one another. Help us to bear each other's burdens in the hard times. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.